Oh, it's good to, to celebrate the resurrection this next week and this whole week to look at Christ's death, his payment for our sins, and then his resurrection when he defeats death. And this morning we want to talk a little bit about the, the results of that. What happens when we die, what, what we can be looking forward to. Is it safe to say that, that we would look at our bodies and be like, they're failing? Right? Yeah, last Monday I, I was doing some lawn work, and lawn work's not that terrible, and in part of it, a, a little edger trimmer thing that I have was broken, and so I spent a couple hours on my knees fixing this thing. The next two days, I could barely move. I could barely sit down, if you know what I mean. It, it, it just it hurt, and I'm like, this body is failing, and I'm like, that didn't happen when I was 20. Some of you that are 20, you you have a lot to look forward to. It's awesome. (laughs) Okay, maybe not. We're keenly aware our bodies are breaking down, right? And, and, And so as we get older, as we realize our body's breaking down, we begin to focus a little bit more and more on the next body, that God has something different for us. And so we're looking forward to a better body. We're looking forward to something that replaces this that has been tainted by this fallen world. All of us have been tainted by this fallen world, not just in the sin that we do, but in the death and decay that happens to our body and in the world around us. This is not how God intended it to be. But because we rebelled, this is how it is. And Easter is all about God changing that, redeeming that. And it is an awesome, wonderful thing. And so we can look forward to heaven and we can long for heaven. And, and Susie and I sometimes talk, we're like, hey, if Jesus came back right now, that'd be cool. Today would be a great day for Jesus to come back. I don't know if you've ever, ever said that. My sister and I were talking a little bit. I am going to use you as an example. And um, she's here this morning. And, and she was saying that when she was little, she used to say, well, maybe don't come back yet. I haven't gotten married yet. I haven't gotten kids yet. But now we were talking today, and we're both like, well, now it's like, come back now. And it's not, it's not because we, she's experienced those things, or I've experienced life. It's because the longer we live in this world, the more we realize how messed up this world is. And the more we realize how glorious and amazing heaven will be. But here's the dilemma that Paul wants to, to address in our text today. He wants us to long for heaven. He wants us to be so excited about heaven that it affects how we are here. Because the danger is we could check out here because we're so excited about heaven. How many of you are seniors? We have have some seniors. I'm thinking in school. Sorry. The hands went up and I realized I worded that question wrong. (laughs) We have some high school seniors, some college seniors. This is about the time of the year, right? Where it just all goes south. you, You get this disease that is somewhat contagious. It's called senioritis. And it's just hard to do any work, hard to do the reports. Finals? We can do the same thing in life as we get so excited about heaven. We get so excited about what God's doing that we become so heavenly minded that we're just no earthly good. And that's not pleasing to God. 
And so Paul last week was talking about that we're clay pots. I'm not going to break one today, but I wanted to put one up here to remind us that we're clay pots, ordinary, flawed, so we can display the glory of who God is and his gospel. And then Paul moves into, okay, how do we view this as temporary? How do we view these trials as light and momentary by looking ahead to what God is doing? But in today's text, he reminds us that doesn't give us an excuse to check out. And so today we're going to look at at a, a number of things about life after death. And one of the things about the supernatural and life after death in Scripture is we don't have a blueprint of how everything exactly is going to be. We don't have pictures in your Bible of heaven. Uh, we, we don't have a, a detailed ex- expansion of what this theology is. We get little glimpses, little windows, I like to say, throughout Scripture. Today is one of those windows. And we get a little glimpse into what it looks like when we die and what heaven's going to look like and what life with Christ is going to look like. It, it's like seeing through a fence and looking through a little hole in the fence at a construction yard. I don't know, a number of you have Disney passes. Remember, remember when Cars Land was being built. And they had that fence there. And every time you walk by that fence, there's like 10 people looking through the, the, the little holes. I know what it's going to look like. And you're just seeing a glimpse. And that's a little bit of what we see of heaven in Scripture. When we see books that try to say, well, this is what heaven is like, and be very suspicious. Because there's reasons God didn't give us all those details. Because he wants us to walk by faith. And so today, turn with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. And we're going to talk about longing for heaven, longing forward, but not checking out now. And how do we do that? And Paul's going to address both of those things. Because we need to both long for heaven and realize we still have a job to do here. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, we'll be starting at verse 1. If you don't have a Bible, there's a black one under the chairs right around you. Please grab one of those, open it up to 2 Corinthians. We'd love for you to follow along. If you don't have one at home, please take that with you as our gift for you. 2 Corinthians chapter 5. And we're actually going to jump back three verses and start at at the end of four because they all tie together. Remember the chapter um, divisions weren't there in the original. And this is one of those cases where it's really one thought. And so we're going to jump back to verse 16 of chapter 4, start there, and then start our study in chapter 5. So we do not lose heart. Though the outer self is wasting away, Our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not on the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. And then Paul continues this thought to challenge us to look forward to heaven and to still be present here doing God's work. In verse 1 of chapter 5, and we'll read the first five verses. For we know that if the tent that is our earthly home is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. For in this tent we groan, longing to put on our heavenly dwelling. If indeed by putting it on we may not be found naked. For while we were still in this tent, we groan, being burdened, not that we would be unclothed, but that we would be further clothed so that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. He who has prepared us for this very thing is God, who has given us his spirit as a guarantee. And so we just jump right in to to Paul comparing our bodies with, with what is to come. 
And so we want to look at some of these verses. We start with, for we know that the tent that is our earthly home is, that if the tent that is our earthly home is destroyed in verse one there. And that four reminds us that he's expanding on what it means to have slight momentary affliction that prepares us for an eternal weight of glory. And he says, for we know that if the tent that is our earthly home is destroyed. A number of things in this passage, the commentators, commentators are all over the place of what each of these mean. And so I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna give you a half hour on each word, but just a little blurb of what, um, it looks like it means and the best understanding we have. And if you want to talk more about that, we can talk later. But when Paul refers to the tent here that is our earthly home, he's referring to this, our earthly bodies. And so he's referring to this earthly body that houses our soul, that houses our spirit. And he says, this is being destroyed. The imagery here is really interesting. Remember Corinth, every two years what they had, they had the Isthmian Games. And what would happen is a bunch of people would swarm the town. Well, where did they stay? They'd set up tents. And so Corinth, for those, for those games, every two years, became tent city. Paul was also a tent maker, so he got this. He understood this. And, and he said, our tent is what we're living in right now. Is a tent a permanent home? How many of you live in a tent? No, never mind, don't answer that. Maybe you do, and that, that, that's okay. But we, our goal is to not live in tent for the, for the rest of our lives. I can remember down at Yugo, and, and we would spend a week, and you guys don't have to do this anymore, do you? Bless your hearts. Um, we'd have to live in tents. And the thing about every year in, at spring in Yugo is these massive winds would come up sometime during the week. Remember that? I remember one night at 2 in the morning, this huge wind came up. And it was just, you know, we think of wind as sort of flapping on the edge of the tent. No, this was rolling the tent over with the girls inside. And, and eventually the tent, I believe that tent tore in half. Is that what happened? Or the, the stakes all broke and it just was a mess. Another year a tent actually tore from the base. And that wasn't real pleasant either when it rained the next day. But um, th- this tent was being destroyed because it's not permanent. It wasn't, tents are never intended to be permanent. Think of Paul using that imagery for our lives here on earth. This is a tent. It's failing. Some of you, I know, many, many of you are dealing with a number of physical things. And and especially as we get older, we deal with more physical things. And I was in the doctor several times this week as well. And it's a reminder, this isn't permanent. This is failing. The aches and pains are what Paul is talking about here. That if the tent that is is our earthly home is destroyed... But he's talking about the trials and the tribulations and the pressures as well. All of the things from living in this really messed up world because of the fall, this Genesis 3 world. The word for destroyed there was also used for taking down a tent. And so he's he's really using this imagery when we're living in a, a tent, the tent can get destroyed. It can get taken down. That's what we're facing here. But, but we have a building from God a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. All kinds of thoughts of what this means, but it's actually pretty simple. One of the things with Scripture, read the whole text, look at the context and look for the natural meaning. Here he's talking about our our resurrected bodies, the bodies we're looking forward to. We get a new one. Praise God. 
right? Without the aches and pains, without the, the scars, without anything that sin has done to our bodies, we, if we are believers, we get a new one not made with human hands that God designs for us. He recreates us. Some have thought, well, maybe this is our mansion, maybe this is Jesus' body. But really the context, and especially if we look at Romans 8, which is a parallel to this passage, this is the redemption of our bodies. Romans 8, let me read Romans 8, 22 and 23. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons the redemption of our bodies. And so Paul here is painting a contrast. The body, the jar of clay, the thing that's failing is a tent. And he uses all kinds of imagery for body. And in the last chapter, we saw that he refers to it um, as um, failing and as weak. And so we have a tent here. He's comparing that with an eternal body, a resurrected body that God creates for us. I love one other thing there. If you look at um, the middle of that verse, it says, we have a building from God. And that's really an interesting in verb because he doesn't say we will have. But he says we have, and there's a certainty with that. There's a certainty that God will not leave you hanging. He has and will resurrect your body. And he will bring us to eternity with him. A body fit for all eternity, fit to walk with God in the new heaven and the new earth that will last for all eternity. So that's the setup for the first 10 verses here. Paul goes on in the next few verses to expand this thought. And point number one there is we need to long forward. We were made for more than this life. Long forward. Long for what's coming. We were made for more than this life. If this life is it, then we should check out. This, this isn't worth it. But there's more. There's something coming. We talked about that a little bit um, last week. In verse 2, he goes on, For in this tent we groan. And that idea of groan is to, to sigh or groan as a result of deep concern or stress, almost involuntarily. The idea is so much is happening to you that it's like, oh, you can't even control it. You're done. It, it's a struggle. And he says, in this tent, in this body, we groan, longing to put on our heavenly dwelling. If indeed, by putting it on, we may be found naked. And so we see this longing to get past the struggles here, past the afflictions here. Anyone relate with that? Yeah, Paul's, Paul's preaching to us here. He's saying, long for heaven because we get past the, the tent stuff that we're made of, the clay stuff that we're made of. It gets better. This is just temporary. But then he says, if indeed by putting it on, we may not be found naked. And, and this is an interesting section here because what does that mean? What does it mean to, to put on a heavenly dwelling and then now he goes into clothing and that we're putting on a new body, but we don't want to be found naked. And there, there's a number of different possibilities for what this means. Um, a, a key here is, is like in 1 Corinthians 15:37 and several other verses, the, the idea of being naked here is to be inadequately dressed. And Paul is probably referring to this time, and we're going to get into some, some theology here and, and sort of things that blow our mind a little bit, but he's probably referring to a time after we die that our earthly body is dead, 
and, and, and in the grave, but our spirit is with Jesus in heaven. But we know from other scriptures that we're not, we don't get our resurrected body until Christ returns. And so this in-between time, when, when we are a soul that is in the presence of Jesus, in the glory of Jesus, but we don't have our resurrected body, is often referred to as being naked or unclothed. Does that make sense? So, so we, we have to understand that. So when Paul says, for in this tent we groan, longing to put on our heavenly dwelling, if indeed by putting it on we may not be found naked. Some, some scholars have thought, well, maybe Paul, he is getting toward the end of his life here. Maybe he's beginning to realize that he might die before Jesus comes back. And so he's reflecting on what that looks like. And, and he's longing for that heavenly body. He's longing for the new heaven and earth. But there's this intermediate state, there's this time in between that he knows he'll be with Christ, but still longing for that future, the new heaven and the new earth. One of the things as we read things like this, we have to remember that these are glimpses. And so this is, this is not something that we can build an entire theology on this one verse. Because it's just a glimpse into it. And we don't know what God is going to do after we die. What we do know is that we will be with him. And we'll get to that at the end of this point of what we do know. And all this is sort of trying to understand the verses that we have. And this makes sense for them because the Greeks that that Paul was speaking to, the, the Greek mindset at Corinth was that when you died, your soul was finally free of your body. And so they didn't believe in a resurrection. They didn't believe that our souls would ever be reunited with our bodies and that God would recreate a new heaven and a new earth. Their, their whole idea was when you die, woohoo, your soul's free. And it can fly away and, and haunt people and do whatever you want. So it just was a really weird mindset. So Paul here is actually addressing that and saying, no, that's just a time where we are with Christ and we will be reunited with a heavenly body, with a resurrected body. Make sense? Get down in the weeds a little bit to understand this, but it's important to understand what Paul is saying. Verse 4, For while we are still in this tent, we groan, being burdened, not that we would be unclothed, but that we would be further clothed, so that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. And he gives us this picture of death swallowing up or being swallowed up by victory, that our, our new life Our new bodies that God is going to give us are going to swallow up these. And the imagery, uh, a couple of different imageries. One is someone drowning in the sea and the sea swallows them up. And our glorified bodies are going to swallow up this existence completely. This is going to be gone. What Jesus is going to give us is glorious. The other imagery that that word can mean is like a big fish eating a little fish. And then another big fish eating that fish. And a whole number of you are thinking Star Wars Episode 1 right now, and there's always a bigger fish, and that can be this idea too. But the idea is what God is preparing for you is going to swallow up this life. It's going to completely change who we are. It's going to be so incredible. And so Paul here is developing a longing for that, a burden for that. We will be made new couple of thoughts about that, about our resurrected body. And we talked about this in 1 Corinthians 15. But I want to read a couple of verses from 1 Corinthians 15. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable and we shall be changed. 
For this perishable body must put on the imperishable. This mortal body must put on immortality. Village, this is not all there is. And I'm so glad. Because this is going to be replaced by something that completely blows this life away. A resurrected body. One other thought to understand, sometimes we, we can mis- mistake resurrected bodies as we get a, a whole new body or, or something completely different. Keep in mind, resurrected means this body is resurrected and changed. So somehow what we will become is related to who we are. But God, in His power, completely changes it into this glorified body. It, it is going to be incredible. He refers to the resurrected body as from God, as imperishable, as heavenly, as eternal. So a couple notes wrapping up these first four verses. We don't know all the details, but here's what we do know. When a believer dies, they will be with Christ. Absolutely, when a believer dies, they will be with Christ. Paul's going to go on in the next few verses to say to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. It is immediate. It is, as you look at at the verses, so many of the verses are temporal in nature or time-related in nature to where it just happens. As soon as we die, we will be with Christ. Is that comforting? That we cling to. It's why funerals for saints aren't sad occasions. They hurt, we grieve, but they are also times of joy because to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. Second thing we know for sure, when Jesus returns, believers will be given resurrected, glorified bodies. When Jesus returns, believers will be given resurrected, glorified bodies. So as we look at this, we can argue some of the finer points and and I, I have my opinions of what the text says, but we can't argue those two things. Those are definite. We hold those tightly. And Paul is using those to say long forward. Long for heaven. This is not all there is. He goes on in verse 5 to to expand on this a little bit more. He who has prepared us for this very thing is God, who has given us the Spirit as a guarantee. And he's reminding us God is preparing us for our eternal state. He's preparing us for eternity with Him. Sometimes that means trials here. And we talked about that last week, that God uses trials here for His glory and to refine us. All of this is preparing us for eternity with Him because that's what we were made for. We weren't made for the world as it is now. We were made for communion with God. We were made for a world where sin has not tainted and, and, and completely destroyed it. And God's going to give that back to us. Oh, that's exciting. That's why Paul can say we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. And just to seal the deal, he says that God has given us the Spirit. The Holy Spirit is a guarantee And the idea is like a deposit that ensures that it will happen. And God's saying, in case you're doubting there's more to this life, in case you're doubting that we we, hope in the future, I've put my Holy Spirit in you, and He guarantees 
that something different's coming. So don't lose heart. Get excited about heaven. I remember on our honeymoon, uh, we, we'd gone up to Monterey area and I had planned the whole honeymoon and, and planned all the places to stay. And I, I'm a, a, a new husband. Well, I, w- I would be a new husband. I was planning it before our wedding. And I, I, I wanted to plan the perfect honeymoon. You know what I mean? Impress my new bride. Show her that I would take care of her. And we go up there and, and we had, had stayed at some really cool places and we get to one of the places that we were going to stay most of the time, Casa Munras. I still remember the name of it. And we walk into the room, and it was a dump. It was just, uh, half the room was this really thin green indoor-outdoor carpeting that you'd have on your patio. And it was sort of rolling up in the corner. And, and the other half was these tile squares that were sort of like what we have in the office. Um, and this was the luxury hotel. And I walked in, my heart just sunk. Because what's Susie going to think of me? <laughs> oh, great. You treated me great before we were married, and this is the kind of place you're taking me now? Praise God she didn't say that. <laughs> this is all in my mind. Men, you understand what I'm saying, right? When you're trying to, to impress your, your wife? And, and I had failed, and failed miserably. And the, this dump, I'm thinking, how can we even stay there? And, and it was discouraging, and it, we, it was something I was losing heart over. We ended up leaving the place, got my money back, and went and found someplace with an opening that was at least acceptable. But compare that with, if we went there, and they said, you know what? We have one more day of work on our honeymoon suite. And we, we, we just get a glimpse into the honeymoon suite, and it is fabulous. I mean, plush carpet and a suite and all this, just a layout of snacks and food and just an amazing room. And they say, it's almost done. It'll be done tomorrow. Can you just stay in this temporary room one night? And, and, and then we can give you that for the rest of the week? Does that change your view of the temporary room? Yeah, think about that with life here. We can look at our bodies and we can look at the things that we're going through, the physical elements, the trials, the, the struggles with relationships, the struggles with work, the struggles with lack of work and financial struggles, and we can lose heart and say we are failing. But Paul's point is that's just one night compared to what God's going to give you. Isn't that cool? And that brings new meaning to how we approach this life. Something incredible is coming, and that gives us hope to continue. Praise God, Susie's still married to me. Hopefully I'm still taking care of her in a little better places. We're going to move on to point number two. Point number two, be boldly hope-filled here. It's a a mouthful. Be boldly hope-filled here. Believers will immediately be with him when we die. And Paul is just continuing the same thought and he's adding a little nuance to it. And so in verse 6, he starts with so. And when you see so, that means he's tying it back, right? And so this idea that this is temporary, there's an incredible body and new heaven and new earth waiting for us. He says, so we are always of good courage. 
And he, he's, he's talked about the theology, and now he's talking about the results of that theology. And that word for courage is the idea of confidence, boldness, but it also includes hope and good cheer. And so it isn't this stoic courage like, I'm going to die today and walk to our death. It's this idea of being joyful and approaching what we're doing. And so Paul says, because we know where we end up, we can have hope, we can have cheer, and we can walk courageously. And he brings back the same, same thoughts here. We know that while we are at home in the body, we are away from the Lord. And so he says, when we're here in this earthly tent, even, even though it's a clay pot and it's flawed, we know that we're away from the physical presence of the Lord, for we walk by faith and not by sight. We're in the faith portion of our walk with God. When we're in heaven, we're going to be in the sight portion. It's going to be great. And we, we see this concept in a number of other verses. In, in 1 John 3, 2, Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when He appears, we will be like Him, because we will see Him as He is. Picture it. Picture getting up in the morning. I don't know if we're going to sleep, but let's say we're getting up in the morning. You walk out your door and Jesus is standing there and said, let's take a walk. Let's talk. How are you doing today? Won't that be incredible? Today, we live by faith. And faith is being confident of what we don't see. Hebrews 11.1 1 says, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. But now we're in the faith phase and we will be in the sight phase. Paul goes on and says, yes, we are of good courage. And he repeats this idea of boldly hope-filled living, of joyful confidence. Yes, we are of good courage and we would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. That's where some of your translations say we'd rather be absent from the body and present with the Lord. It's how we know that as soon as we die here, We are in glory with Jesus. That's why Jesus said to the thief on the cross, today you will be with me in paradise. Think about the word at home though for a moment. That word, when I think I'm at home, that's not just location. At home had the idea of relationship as well. When I'm at home, I should be in relationship with my wife and kids. They really don't want me to be off in a corner ignoring them the whole night. Or the whole, maybe when we're sleeping, but the the whole time I'm there. They expect relationship. They expect interaction. And that's built into this word when it says we'd rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. It's reminding us we're going to be restored to incredible relationship with God. Restored to God. And so Paul's reminding them, because we know where we end up, we can have hope and good cheer courage in whatever circumstances we face. Just like the hotel, if I knew that the honeymoon suite was waiting, that night would be sort of fun before that. We're making memories instead of I'm destroying my wife's view of me. That's how Paul is saying we need to view life here. The glory is waiting. This is where we're being prepared for that. Be of good courage. Be hope-filled. Be of good cheer. So be boldly hope-filled here. And finally, verses 9 and 10 are really what the whole passage is leading up to. Paul is building this argument. We have a new body. 
We, we can look forward to this. And so we do life differently here. And in, in point number three, focus on pleasing the one we will spend eternity with. We'll read nine and 10 and we'll unpack them a little bit. So whether we are at home or away, we make it our aim to please him. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. And in these verses, in this conclusion, Paul gives us two different reasons to please God and two different appeals. The first is he appeals to us to please the one we will make our permanent home with. Here's the logic. If you're going to spend eternity with God and you're just going to spend a a blink of an eye with the people here on earth, isn't it better to, to... to try harder to please God than the people around us? Makes sense, right? He's saying, think of who you're going to spend eternity with. They're the ones that are important. Not that each other isn't important. We're to love each other and to share God's, God's love with each other. But that's because we're pleasing God as we do that. And so he says, whether we're home or away, no matter our circumstances, we aim to please God. It's our focus. It's our strong ambition. It's waking up every day, and we've talked about this, waking up every day and saying, how can I please God today? How can I do what he wants me to do today? Great way to start a day. And that's our goal. Paul says whether we're at home or away, we make it our aim to please him. Because of what he's promised us in the future, we please him now. And so that's sort of the carrot side of it. This is who you're going to spend eternity with. Build that relationship. And then verse 10 is sort of the stick side of it. For me, we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one of you may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. And Paul, the second thing in your notes there is we're to please the one we will answer to. We will please the one we will answer to. And it's a reminder to us that we can't just say, I'm saved and do whatever I want. But someday, every one of us will stand before God at the judgment seat and he will review what we did in this life. And here's the unique way that God has set this up. This temporary life that we live in a tent has eternal consequences. This is the testing ground for our character and whether we're going to love God and whether we're going to follow God. And then for all eternity, we live with the results of that. And so this life is not a throwaway life. How we deal with trials, how we deal with struggles, how we deal with a a failing tent of a body and of a world around us matters for all eternity. Because we are showing ourselves faithful to the God we will live with for all eternity. And so Paul says, for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. Now some of you might be thinking, okay, I'm not sure I buy that. Well, hopefully not, because that's that's right in God's word. But it, it may not make sense, because we know from other verses that we there's no condemnation for those that believe in God, right? That we're saved and Christ has taken away our sin. He's taken the punishment for our sin. And this is where we have to understand some things about the judgments and what's happening here. And I want to explain some of them. But here, this is not a judgment that is salvation oriented. That's the great white throne judgment that happens at the end of the millennium. This is a judgment that gives rewards or takes rewards away depending on our walk with God here. 
And we don't talk about this a lot as a church. We don't say, well, you know what? God is still going to evaluate what we do, even as believers. But he will. God's word says he will. And and that, maybe it scares us, maybe it excites us, but it should hold us accountable. A couple of, of words to understand this. It says we'll appear before the judgment seat of Christ. And you may know that that's sometimes called the bema seat of Christ. And in, in the Greek, the word is used for bema. And the bema seat was a normal platform that they would use. And they would use this platform in the city square for a variety of different uh, things. The city officials would stand on the platform and look over the people and give judicial results. They would judge the people, say, that's right, that's wrong, or that belongs to him, and, and they would do that. They would also bring up the winner of the games onto the Bema seat and give them rewards and give them their crowns. Uh, it, it was a place sometimes for public oration, but it was the center. I have a, a picture of it. Hey, it works. Um, this is a, a drawing of a Bema seat, and so you can see someone sitting there. The judges would sit up there, and they could be seen and heard above the people. Interestingly enough, they found one of these in Corinth. You see sort of how it's the same structure? It's a little torn off on top now, but they would sit up on top of that, and this is in Corinth. And in fact, we know from Acts that Paul was brought before this Bema seat and judged. And so he's using illustrations that they would understand. I think I have, no, I don't have another picture. We'll get to that other one in a minute. And so Paul here is saying, we're all going to appear before the Bema seat, the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in this body. It's in the body, but he's referring to this body, whether good or evil. And so we know that God will test and evaluate everything we do. He'll test and evaluate how you were this morning. A little scary? I actually hope so a little bit. I hope it makes us shake a little bit. Because sometimes I think we take the Christian freedom thing way too far. And we forget that God is still looking to us to please Him. Romans 14.12 says, and it's another parallel passage, so then each of us will give an account of himself to God. And again, this isn't for salvation. This isn't for whether you're saved or not. This, is, this has to do with rewards. Well done, good and faithful servant. If we're, if we're thinking of, of where this fits in, um, this is a judgment that occurs after the rapture of the church. I put a little snippet of a timeline in your notes, and, and I'll just briefly do this. We don't have time to go through the whole timeline. That's a series that Happy and I have taught before. You're not going to get it in five minutes. But here's the deal. This is us. This is the church age. Christ was here. The Holy Spirit descends. This is the church age. This is where we're living. We are looking forward to the rapture. Christ could come back today and take us home to be in glory with him. And at the rapture, that begins the great tribulation, seven years of judgments and wrath by God. And that's divided up in Daniel a little bit. At the end of that is Armageddon and the beginning of the millennium. But the believers that go up are raptured up, then come before the judgment seat of Christ, the Bema seat of Christ. So we're raptured, we're with God, and one of the first things that happens is we're assessed. And rewards are given. This isn't a time of crying, but I think it's a time that we will say, yeah, Lord, you're right. You're right. There won't be rebellion, there won't be sin at that point, but an acknowledgement that God is God. But then it's followed by the wedding feast of the Lamb.
the greatest party that will ever happen. And then we come back with Christ and reign with Him. That's the timing, if you think of, of end times theology, of when this happens. Flip over in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians 3. Another parallel passage, because Paul talks about this with the church at Corinth several times. 1 Corinthians 3, verse 12. Now, if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each one's work will become manifest. For the day will disclose it because it will be revealed by fire. And the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. Same idea here. If the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. This is happening at the the judgment seat of Christ. And if it's eternal in nature, if it survives, if it was pleasing to God, he'll receive a reward. Verse 15, if anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. And when we think of what's going to be burned up, it's all of our non-eternal activities the things that we pursue so heavily. God is not going to reward us for having the high score on a video game. He is not going to reward us for having the best toys in the neighborhood that we can go play with on weekends. He is not going to reward us for having the best house or having the best car. He is going to reward us when we've invested in the most people, when we've shared the gospel with the most people, when we've loved the most people when we've done things that last into eternity that are building the eternal dwelling rather than painting the sides of the tent. I'm not saying it's wrong to have fun and enjoy this life. God wants us to enjoy what he's given us. But when it becomes our focus, our aim that Paul says, it's a problem. Because our aim, our focus is to please him. Ten verses. Incredibly encouraging and incredibly scary at the same time for me. Maybe for you too. I'm encouraged that I can look forward to a heavenly body. I'm encouraged that this isn't it. That helps me not lose heart. But I'm also challenged to say, am I living for eternity? Because what I do here matters. How faithful have I been with my time? How have I used my gifts and skills for the kingdom? Does my neighbor know I'm a believer? How single-minded have I been for God? Have I resisted sin in my life to the point of shedding blood, like Hebrews 12.4 says? We are saved to live for God. It says we're prepared for eternity with God. And that means we live differently now. We're not saved by good works but we're saved to do good works. Let's live like people longing forward, but not checking out now. Living with hope of a glorious life with Christ. Let's pray. Lord God, thank you for your word. Thank you for glimpses into heaven. And Lord, thank you for not telling us all so we get proud and arrogant about it. But Lord, my prayer for myself, my prayer for village is that you would challenge us that we will be held accountable for what we do. Salvation is not a free pass, but it's a pass of power to do your work. And Lord, help us to live 
longing for heaven, but longing for those rewards, to please the one we will spend eternity with, that you will look at everyone in this room when we are before the Bema seat and we look up at you and you'll be able to say, well done, good and faithful servant. Lord God, thank you for giving us that promise that can get us through this messed up world, that can help us keep a good attitude when nobody else does, that can give us hope, help us to be different people here because of eternity with you. Thank you, God, in Jesus' name. Amen.